morning by telling you about um, what took place in England in the 1600s. Charles II took the throne of England in 1660. And when he took the throne, there had been this ongoing debate between the parties, religious parties in the Church of England. There were the Anglicans on the one side and there were the nonconformists on the other side. The Anglicans, of course, held that to be a, a pastor in good standing of the church, you need to hold complete uniformity to the church, to the Book of Common Prayer. The dissenters, or the nonconformists, on the other hand, refused to submit themselves to some of the more sacramental elements contained in the, the Book of Common Prayer, like wearing liturgical vestments, or kneeling during communion, or making the sign of the cross at baptism, or bowing at the name of Jesus. I mean, these things, these uh, nonconformists saw us not scriptural, and it violated their conscience to do these things. But those things were included in the Book of Common Prayer, and so for years there had been a battle between these, these two parties in the church. And in 1961, the year after Charles II took over the throne, the Savoy Conference was called. This is a conference, this is an official conference of the Church of England that was called in an order in an effort to settle the differences once for all between the, the nonconformists and the Anglicans. Can, can we just work something out was the desire of this conference. Richard Baxter, one of the nonconformists, even wrote up an alternate liturgy that could be used by everyone in allowing the nonconformists to serve in good conscience in the established church. But the Anglican bishops held fast, stood firm, their adherence to the Book of Common Prayer, and rejected any changes whatsoever to the liturgy of the Church of England. In so doing, they paved the way for the Act of Uniformity. The Act of Uniformity came on August 24, 1662, in which the, all the pastors, all the ministers of England had to publicly give their unfeigned consent and assent to the Book of Common Prayer. And if they refused to do so, they'd be no longer permitted by governmental law as the head of the, the church to preach the gospel. So these nonconformists were really confronted with a situation. And what happened on August 24, 1662, is that 2,000 pastors were ejected from their churches. It's called the Great Ejection. These pastors were no longer permitted to perform their ministerial functions. Some were cast into poverty, others were exiled, others were persecuted, and some deaths came about as a result of this whole conflict. As I've mentioned already, one of those pastors' name was Richard Baxter. He had a ministry in Kidderminster, which was amazing. The, the testimonies, we came to Kidderminster, it's a small village. There was but maybe one person on each street that worshipped God. But by the time he left, there was hardly any who didn't worship God. The complete town submitted to his private catechizing and personal conference had a church of over 600 members in a small little village. Well, when August of 1662 came, he, of course, was a nonconformist. And, and it came for him time to deliver his last message to the church. He would be exiled apart from these people, never being able to minister to them again. And when he chose as his text, the very last text he would preach to them, he chose Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. 
the same text that we've come to in our exposition of the book of Colossians. And they're appropriate verses for Richard Baxter to preach to those people who are going to prepare the rest of their days without him. Because he was seeking to sum up the entire Christian life. If you read this sermon as I did this week, he gives over 35 lengthy exhortations to the people and how it is that they ought to live. Trying to just summarize all of the Christian life for them. Here's what it is. And it is a good text for them to, to read and to go over because Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7 sum up the entire Christian life. In fact, I would even say it this way. If you get these verses right, you'll get all of Christianity right. So powerful are these words. If you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. Verses 6 and 7 form a pivot upon which turns the entire letter. On the one hand, it summarizes everything that Paul has said previous in laying a foundation to combat the heresies that have come upon Colossae. And on the other hand, it prepares the way in particular for how to deal with the heresies that they're going to deal with. Really, a, I don't know, maybe a capstone or it's a pivot. It's where the whole book kind of hinges on these two verses. Paul writes this, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. My message this morning is entitled, Walk in Him. Simply because that's the central command of these verses. You can see it right there at the end of verse 6. So walk in Him. Everything else in this passage modifies how it is that we need to walk in Him. So that's the central admonition. And when Paul talks here about walking, he's describing really the way we live. He uses this metaphor often, as does the rest of the Bible, even the Old Testament. He uses this metaphor of the, the Christian life, the life that pleases God, as, as a walk. In, in chapter 3, verse 7, if you turn over there, you can even see Paul speaking about the, the sins which were characteristic of all of us before Christ. He said, in them, in these sins, you also once walked when you were living in them. In other words, these were the sins in which you were living in. This is the way that you behaved. These are the ways that you walked. Over in chapter 4, verse 5, we see the same thing. <clears throat> Walk with wisdom toward outsiders. I mean, just conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders. How the New American Standard and ESV translate it. The NIV says that this phrase is the way you act. Right? Act in a wise way towards those who are outside the church. And that's what it means here in verse 6 of chapter 2. As you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, live in Him. In fact, in my New American Standard Bible, I see even a footnote here that says, lead your life in Him. That's what it's talking about. It's talking about the way you live. When it's all said and done, this is how you're to live. You're to live in Christ. That's what it says. Walk in Him. And I say how appropriate it was for Richard Baxter to use these as a final words to his people, to walk in Jesus. And how timely these words are for us as well. Well, let's look at how we need to walk in Him. My outline's simple. It follows the five modifying thoughts to this central idea to walk in Him. The first is this. Walk as you began. 
Walk as you began. I get this from the first half of verse 6. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. See, when you become a believer in Jesus Christ, the rules don't change for your life. The same way in which you receive Jesus is the same way that you ought to live in Jesus. The same way that you ought to continue living is all the same way upon which you receive Jesus. You know, it's a bit like driving a car. Our neighbor, our neighbor's daughter, who's 16 years old, just received her driver's license. She received it this past Tuesday. And my wife and I weren't fully aware that she just received her license until we're standing out in our, in our lawn on Friday and we see our neighbor's car driving by and lo and behold, who's driving it? But their 16-year-old daughter. And uh, when she saw that we saw her, a big smile came on her face. And she kind of said, put a wave over to us, almost as if to say, Hello, Brandons, check it out. Seat over here is empty. My parents are here. I've got my license. We'll be seeing you around. Right? And I think that she was so, so intent on looking at us that she almost overrode the next intersection kind of down our road. And we... we prayed quickly for the Lord's mercy upon the, um, the ensuing path. I did talk with her yesterday and said, Hey, Jessica, I saw you're out driving and I saw you have your license. And we saw the car safe and sound Friday evening back. So I guess you made it safely. And she said, Yeah. That was her second time out when she drove by. I want you to imagine the advice that her parents may have given her. I think they probably had a conversation something like this. <clears throat> We're giving you the keys to our car, and it's a lot of responsibility. And we want you to drive safely. Do you remember how it is you drove when you were with us? Do you remember that? That's how we want you to drive. Don't try anything crazy or risky or tricky. Don't drive too fast. Drive just as you have been taught to drive. That's the message that Paul is communicating here to the Colossians. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. How you began is how you ought to continue, right? At this point, it begs the question, well, how exactly do you receive Jesus? Fundamentally, this idea of receiving is the idea of taking and accepting what is given to you, right? Put your arms out and you just receive what is given to you. The idea here is one of embracing, trusting, and believing. Receiving Jesus is simply believing Him, trusting Him. But it is receiving all of Jesus. I mean, whatever Jesus is, that's what you receive. Whoever Jesus is, that's where you receive. You receive Him and that's who He is. You trust Him and embrace Him. Right In the context, there are two words here that describe who Jesus is. First is Christ. It's the Hebrew word for Messiah, the Anointed One, who's coming to save the people of Israel. And so the idea of, of Jesus being Christ is that Jesus is the, the Messiah who's come to save. And we know that He did this on the cross. In chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, there's a, an explanation about what Jesus did as Messiah. He said, "...when you, Colossians, were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh..." He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us 
and which was hostile to us, and He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. That is the work of the Messiah. That is the work of the Christ, dying in the place of those who believe that they might become the righteousness of God in Him. That's what it means when you believe and embrace Jesus as Christ. Believing His messianic, saving, rescuing role. But this verse also speaks about Jesus as Lord. Speaks more about His position. Speaks more about His authority. He's the creator, sustainer, and ruler of the world. He's the head of the church who ought to have first place in everything in your lives. That's described in chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, whether visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. When you receive Jesus, you receive all of Him. Receiving Jesus is trusting Him as Messiah who came to save and is bowing the knee to Jesus who is the Lord of the universe. And in chapter 1, we see the Colossians did receive Jesus in this way. They believed in Him. Chapter 1, verse 4. Paul heard of their faith in Christ Jesus and rejoiced that they had believed in Him and rejoiced that they had received Him. They had believed, as chapter 1, verse 5 says, in the Gospel. Right? That's the good news of God coming to save. You simply need to believe and trust in Him. They have understood the grace of God in truth, is what it says there at the end of verse 6. So, so what is the grace of God in truth? Here it is in a nutshell. So Jesus Christ, in whom all the fullness of deity dwells, came to earth to die a death that we as sinners deserved. And when we believe and trust in His death and resurrection, our sins are forgiven us. We're transferred from spiritual darkness into spiritual life. We become heirs of the kingdom all by the grace of God given to those who believe. That's the truth in a nutshell. That is the gospel, the grace of God. It is unbelievable good news. And when those at Colossae received Jesus, that's how they received Him. They received Him by faith, trusting Him to remove this hostility between them and God that, that their sins created because Jesus removed it from them. And if you have experienced and received Jesus by faith, these are what you've experienced. You've experienced forgiveness of sins. You've experienced a Father saying, I forgive you. You've experienced a new birth, a, a, a transformation from death unto life. You have now the hope of eternal life in heaven. And the point of our text this morning is this. Walk as you began. In other words, walk in the gospel that saved you. Walk in faith. Walk, in the, walk as one who is forgiven. Walk in the newness of life. Walk as one who has hope in heaven. Live as the same manner as you did when you first believed. Never move on from that. Keep the course which you started. That's what he's saying. You know, in the athletic world, you always need to be reminded of the, the fundamentals, right? You need to keep your eye on the ball. Or, or you need to follow through on your swing. Or you need to keep low in your stance. And I don't care if you're Jack Nicholas or Kobe Bryant, 
you are going to have to be reminded again and again and again and again of all of these fundamentals. I've heard the story told many times of Vince Lombardi holding up a football first day of training cramp every year. Holds it high so that everyone sees. And he says, gentlemen, this is a football. Getting back to the fundamentals. In the athletic world, you have to do that. In the business world, you need to remember the things that made you successful. How many businesses fail because they, when they seek to expand their business, they forgot what it was that made their business expandable in the first place. And in expanding, they die. For instance, think about the hamburger joint that's known for its hamburgers. And it starts growing because of the great hamburgers that it sells. It says, hey, we got a lot of people. we got this kitchen. Let's start making pizza. And so they start making pizza as well. And in making the pizza, people forget about the hamburgers. And they forget about the hamburgers. The hamburgers don't taste so nice. And you know what? The pizza isn't so good, nor the hamburgers. And their expansion, they fail. Because they forgot the fundamentals. And I say in the Christian life, it's no different. We can never forget the gospel that saved us. We can never fail to live in the gospel. We can never forget the sin that was forgiven. Never forget the realities of the gospel. Never fail to place your hope in heaven. As Paul says, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Never get beyond where you started in the Christian life. You began by faith. You need to live by faith. You know, the Bible has several examples of those who failed at this very point. Perhaps you remember the examples of the churches in Galatia to whom Paul wrote. He said, you foolish Galatians. Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. Who's bewitched you? Who's cast this spell on you? Have you gone mad? Is what he's saying them to them. Before your eyes, Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. In other words, you heard of Jesus Christ crucified, dead and buried, rose again from the dead. You heard that message. And here he says, there's one thing, Galatians chapter 3, verse 2, there's one thing I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? And of course, it's a rhetorical question. Did the Spirit come by... Works of the law or by hearing with faith? And they say, well, of course, Paul, it came by hearing with faith. And then Paul continues in Galatians chapter 3, verse 3. Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit by faith, are you now being perfected in the flesh by works? He's saying, you've missed it. You who started by faith in the Spirit, by faith in the Spirit came in the Spirit trusting in Christ, You've forgotten, and now you're living by works. You see what their error was? They forgot the fundamentals. And Paul would say, no, no, you need to live your life by faith. So he says, to continue your Christian life in any other way than the way in which you began is foolish. In fact, the entire book of Galatians is devoted to bringing these people back to where they began. They began their spiritual Christian life in the Spirit through faith and they were to continue their Christian life in the Spirit through faith. It's that simple. Another example of this, of those who failed, 
to live as they began was the church in Ephesus. Uh, on the one hand, the church in Ephesus was doing great. Listen to Revelation chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Jesus said this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and that you put to test those who call themselves apostles and are not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. I mean, you, you listen to that said, that is a great church. They have sound orthodoxy. They can't tolerate evil men. They have toil and perseverance. They've endured for His namesake. You listen to that you say, that's a great church. But then He says, you know what? This one thing I have against you, remember? Revelation chapter 2, verse 4. You've left your first love. They're involved in lots of religious activity, lots of orthodoxy, lots of testing, lots of things, lots of toil, but... But they forgot where they began. They forgot their first love. Now, we don't know exactly what the first love is. But some have said evangelism. Some have said love to Christ, love to God. But whatever it has, it has to do with the very first rudimentaries of how they receive the gospel. Paul says, therefore, remember. Jesus says, therefore, remember from where you've fallen. Repent and do the deeds you did at first. Or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Despite doing all these good things at church, despite their toil and perseverance, Jesus said, unless you get back to your first love, I'm going to remove your lampstand and remove your church from you. That's how serious an issue this is. Unless they repented, Jesus would eliminate the church. And so I just say to you, church family, how important is it for us to walk as we began? I hope you see the significance of that. Second point. First point, walk as you began. Second point, walk like a tree. Walk like a tree. Does that make sense? That's exactly what Paul says. Look. Walk in Him, having been firmly rooted. Paul is doing here, it's called mixing metaphors, which English professors and English teachers say, don't mix your metaphors. C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien were great friends, both professors together in the English department in Oxford. And they had a weekly meeting together with some other professors called the Inklings. Right, the, the inklings that they're putting ink down on paper. And, and in this society meeting that they would have, they'd share their recent writing with one another and then it would be critiqued by others at the meeting. It was a way for them as uh, writers to uh, sharpen their skills. But when C.S. Lewis at one point shared his new book with J.R.R. Tolkien, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, Tolkien said he liked the story, but he said, there's really one point that I would, I'd get out of that story. Do you remember what it was? Father Christmas. He says, C.S. Lewis, you are, Jack is what he was said, you're, you're mixing metaphors. I mean, Narnia is a fantasy land. But Father Christmas brings into this fantasy land a hint about Christianity <clears throat> and reality. And it, it just doesn't quite mix together. So, Jack, I would remove that part of the story. Now, he didn't. But English professors hate it when you mix metaphors. But that's what 
Paul did. Maybe he was before English professors. I'm not exactly sure. But he's mixing metaphors here. And so I just say, let's, let's keep it mixed. Like walk like a tree. Picture here is of a tree whose roots dig deep into the soil. The tree is able to withstand a drought because it's not dependent upon surface water, right? Rather, it receives its nourishment from deep down in the soil. Uh, so I did some research. I read that a mature oak tree can draw up more than 50 gallons of water a day up through its root system. Such a tree like that's not going to be blown away by the high wind because its roots stretch deep and wide. In fact, you push over a tree like that and a big hunk of dirt comes up with it, right? You're moving a mountain of dirt. How different are the root structures of the mighty oak tree and the tumbleweed? did some research about the tumbleweed this week. And the tumbleweed grows with a single stem that secures it to the ground. Once it grows and its seeds are ripe in autumn, a layer of cells from the, the stem of the plant weakened and eventually gets so weak that as the wind comes, it snaps and breaks away and this tumbleweed then rolls throughout the western countryside distributing its sometimes up to 250,000 seeds all along everywhere as it kind of rolls and rolls and rolls along. Our lives as Christians need to be like a tree rooted and grounded not like tumbleweeds tossed here and there by every wind. And now it's interesting is here, you need, to be, you need to note at this point the tense of the verb, being rooted, having been rooted. It's called the perfect tense, which means that it's taken place already and it has a present reality. In other words, these Colossians are rooted in the faith. And the exhortation then comes to remain rooted, stay rooted, remain as an oak tree, refuse to let your roots decay like the tumbleweed. And, and if you think about it, this really kind of gets back to my first point, doesn't it? Stay rooted. Stay grounded in the soil in which you were first grounded. They need to walk as they began. Paul said this, that when Epaphras came and brought the gospel message to you, that's sufficient. That's all you need. The soil in which you have first placed your roots is the same soil that's going to continue to nourish you in the future. You don't need to go across the field across the road to another field where it looks like the soil is better over there. In Christ Jesus, they have everything they need. You don't need to be rooted any other place, but be rooted in the message that Epaphras brought to you. Paul said it, Peter said it well. His second epistle, chapter 1, verse 3, His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. There's nothing more that you need, but that you already have. past Monday is my day off. This is my custom. I oftentimes have a conversation with Yvonne about 10 o'clock in the morning. I say, you know what, Yvonne? What kind of project should I do for you today? And oftentimes we come up with a list of all the different projects that we have hanging out in our house that we got to do. And oftentimes, we'll, well, how about if I do this one and do this one and maybe you can help with this and kind of just prioritize every Monday together. Well, this past Monday, we decided to get rid of the mold problem on the ceiling of our porch. Our porch is uh, completely white, but there's some dark spots that have been growing on our ceiling. And we said, let's just get rid of that. So we said, okay, let's get rid of that. And so we got some bleach. She was going to help me with this. We got some bleach and uh, began to you know, scrub the mold on the top of that. And the plan is to get rid of the mold and then paint the ceiling. But as we thought about painting, we looked at the sides of the porch as well. And we said, 
those need to be painted as well. So we said, okay, well, but if the sides are going to be painted, then the, the screens need to come off. And um, so as I took the screens off, I found that there were lots of rotted boards. And so I had to take some boards out and replace some boards. And we didn't finish the project yet. In fact, our, our porch is still kind of a, a mess. Well, at one point, all the screens were off. We began to uh, scrape off the paint of our porch. And Yvonne said, Steve, do we have a paint scraper? I said, no. She said, well, I'm, let me run to Lowe's and get one. And so she ran to Lowe's across the street. And um, here's what she purchased. She purchased a, a paint scraper to start scraping off all that paint in, in our porch. And then, lo and behold, our kids come along. They say, what are you doing, Mom? I'm scraping off the paint. They say, can I help? Now, you never say, no, you can't help. You say, I've only got one of these. Tell you what. I said taking advantage of the situation, seizing the day. I said, let me go to Lowe's. And I went, and I went to Lowe's, and um, this is what I got. Got another paint scraper so they can, you know, all go about scraping the paint. Good thing we live just five minutes from Lowe's. And uh, we were scraping off this paint and kind of going at it. Well, later in the day when I was working, looking in my pile of messy tools, you know what I found? I found one of these. I say too bad purge and swap wasn't this week because um, one of these would make it in there. But you know, here's the point. Is that when Yvonne asked, do we have a paint scraper? I already had a paint scraper. But I just didn't realize it. I didn't know it. And so we're off looking for another paint scraper. <clears throat> My problem was that I didn't know what I had. That's the point here of Colossians chapter 2, verse 7. You're rooted in the faith. There's no reason for you to seek other soil. If you have Jesus, you have everything you need. So walk in Him as you began. Walk like a tree. And thirdly, walk like a house. Walk like a house. That's the imagery here. The next phrase in verse 7. Being built up in Him. That's all modifying how we ought to walk. We ought to walk like a tree. We ought to walk like a house. I trust that you have seen construction projects because the picture of a growing Christian is the picture of a construction project. House being built. The foundation is poured. The, the floor joists are laid. The first floor is laid. Then the walls go up on the first floor. And then the, the second floor comes on, and then the wall's up for the second floor, and then the trusses for the roof, and then the roof. And that's how a house is built. It's built up. It's no accident that I think all of your translations here even say that the believer is built up. He's epi oikodemeo. He is built upon, is what it says. The, the sense of this phrase is like this, the previous one. Just as a tree continues to grow, it grows in the same soil where the roots have been implanted. And so also here, the house continues to be built upon the foundation. It builds up. It's not building out. It's building up upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. And I think that's the purpose of this little phrase when it says, built up in Him. We are built up in Him. I think the best way to take this phrase is simply to understand that, that, that Christ is the means of our growth. That we are to grow in Him. We're to grow in Christ. And so, do you want to grow in your Christian life? I just say this. Learn more about Jesus. Learn more about the love of Jesus. Learn more about 
the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. Learn more about what it means that He's our High Priest. Learn more about, more about what His divine character is really like. Learn more about His role as King. Learn more about how sovereign Jesus is. Learn more about how He dealt with people on earth. Learn more about His love for the church. And as you learn about these things, don't let it just be in your head, but embrace them as reality. Believe them. Cultivate them. And you'll find yourself drawing closer to Jesus, having a greater love for Him in your heart. That's how you grow in Him, is to find more about Christ. But notice these things aren't new things. It's not so much new things you need to grow in. Rather, it's a fuller understanding of the things that you already know. We already know about the, the love of God in Christ. But you've got to seek deeper into that to know more fully. We already know about His sacrifice. But, but learn deeper and, and learn more about it. And to understand it more fully is what we're talking about here. We're, talk, we're not talking about going some other place. We're talking about building up and building upon the foundation which is in Christ. And Richard Baxter, in this farewell sermon he preached, he made this point well in his old English. This might be a little more difficult. I'll read it slowly. But he made this exact point. He said this, Understand well wherein it is your confirmation, stability, rootedness, and growth in religion consists. The chief part of your growth in grace is not to know more things than you knew before, but to grow in the knowledge, belief, entertainment, and improvement of the same truths that at first you did receive. It's not additional to your former knowledge, but the clearer known, sounder believing, heartier entertaining, and improving of the truths you know at first. As the health of a man consists not in having every day a variety of food, but in parting and digesting of the same food that is fittest for him. Get but a more perfect conviction or concoction of what you knew before. And this is your growth. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying it's not new things you need to know. You just need to know more fully what it is that you believe. And that is the battle of the Christian life. Not to seek the new but to seek to know further what it is that we already believe. So, to walk in Christ, walk as you began, walk like a tree, walk like a house, and here it is, fourthly, walk like a rock. Walk like a rock. It comes to the phrase, established in your faith, just as you were instructed there in verse 7. Now, I know the text doesn't say to be like a rock, but I felt the imagery of a tree in a house and a rock was just too much to pass up. The idea is the same, right? The idea is that of one of firmness, steadiness, security. That's the idea of the other two phrases. Being firmly rooted, there's a a steadiness and a security in that. Being built up, there's a, a firmness, there's a growth to that. They're all the same ideas. In fact, my second, third, and fourth points are really all the same. I thought about just having one point, including all these, but then I thought, you know what? But they're different words modifying this same walk in Him. So I said, let me just keep them. Let me just keep them different. But they're all the same. We need to be firm, as it says in verse 7, just as you were instructed. Come to think about it, 
these points are just like my first point too. I have a four-point sermon that only has one point. Just as you were instructed, right? As you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, being rooted in Him, right? Don't move away from your initial faith. Being built up in Him. Don't trust anything else but Christ. Being established in your faith. Don't move away from your faith just as you were instructed. The way you began is the way that you need to continue. You know, Paul, throughout this message, throughout this book of Colossians, brought up this this idea of strengthening and, and increasing in steadfastness and security on several occasions in this letter. It's the point of what he's been talking about. Look back in chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. Remember this prayer we went through? He's praying so that you walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects. And here's how we please Him. By, by bearing fruit in every work, increasing in the knowledge of God, there is the growth, strengthened with all power. Right? There is the, the rockness, the steadiness, according to His glorious might, for the attaining of steadfastness and patience. Wanting to obtain this firmness, this rock-like quality among Christians. That's what he's trying to do. Praying their lives would grow, be strengthened, be firm and established. Walking like a tree and like a house and like a rock. Just like they'd been taught before. And Paul pressed the importance of staying firmly committed to these things in chapter 1, verse 23. He talked about how He has reconciled you if you continue in the faith, right? Authentic faith is continuing faith. Chapter 1, verse 23. But look at how we need to continue in our faith. Firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the Gospel you have heard. I mean, is that the same message or not? You need to stand firm and steadfast. Don't move away from your original hope. Don't move away from where you started. Don't move away from where you began. Stand firm. Don't waver. Don't move. Don't seek anything else along the way. Walk like a rock. And I say this, how easily we are tempted away from this. I mean, how simple is this I'm talking about? But how easy it is we're tempted away from this. C.S. Lewis made this point in his excellent book entitled Screwtape Letters. It's a fictional account between demons talking with one another. Screwtape is talking with his disciple demon named Wormwood. And uh, the idea of these letters is that um, Screwtape is trying to counsel Wormwood how to distract his Christian patient away from his Christianity. In chapter 25 of this book, Screwtape says this. He says, My dear Wormwood, the real trouble about the set your your patient is living in is that it's nearly Christian. They all have individual interests, but of course, the bond remains mere Christianity. What we want, if men become Christians at all, is to keep them in the state of mind that I call Christianity and. You know, Christianity and the crisis. Christianity and the new psychology. Christianity and the new order. Christianity and faith healing. Christianity and psychological research, Christianity and vegetarianism, Christianity and spelling reform. If they must be Christians, let them at least be Christians with a difference. Substitute for the faith itself some fashion with a a Christian coloring. Work on their horror of the same thing. 
Think about that phrase. Work on their horror of the same thing. I'm here to tell you today that the same thing is the very thing that we need to continue in. It's the very thing we need to remind ourselves of. It's the very thing that we need to remember. It's the very thing we need to never grow tired of hearing. It's the, it's the very thing that we can't let go. In Men's Equippers last week, we passed out this book, The Cross-Centered Life by C.J. Mahaney, which is basically making the same point that Colossians have been making. That's why we're kind of focusing on this. Right, we're encouraging the men to read this book. We're encouraging the men to read this book with their wives. In fact, even today, Yvonne is passing this book out to the ladies involved in ladies' Bible study. Um, you know, if you have this book because your, your husband has got this book, then Yvonne has prepared a booklet of little questions. There's going to be a questions and answers. There's going to be get-together at the, the Gusky's house at some point late July. I forget exactly what. But, you know, this book cost us $6, and you can take it or take it as free of gift. You Give us money, whatever. But this is just for you. This is focusing upon everything that I'm talking about, everything that Colossians is talking about. The cross Center life, the, the subtitle of this is Keeping the Gospel the Main Thing. And uh, Wormwood was told, try to give them a horror of that same old thing. Well, the gospel is the main thing. That's the thrust of what Colossians 2, verse 6, 7 is talking about. It's talking about this. Is the gospel's not just for unbelievers. Oh, it is for unbelievers. Unbelievers need to repent. And if today you find yourself unbelieving in the gospel, I exhort you in the name of the Lord Jesus to repent and believe in the glories of Christ. But I'm telling you, the gospel isn't just where we start and then we move on. The gospel's where we need to be rooted and grounded and stand firm we who have been forgiven of our sins need constant reminders of the Gospel. We need constant reminders of the grace of God in our lives. I, I just want to read for you a little bit of C.J. Mahaney on page 54 and 55 what he says. Because I think this is, this is the thrust of Colossians 6 and 7. And, and, and this is the thrust of Christian life. If you get this right, you get the Christian life right. He says, Reminding ourselves of the Gospel is the most important daily habit we can establish. If the gospel is the most vital news in the world, and if salvation by grace is the defining truth of our existence, we should create ways to immerse ourselves in these truths every day. No days off allowed. In his book, The Discipline of Grace, Jerry Bridges calls this preaching the gospel to yourself. Don't worry, even if you consider your, don't consider yourself a public speaker, you can do this. The audience is your own heart, and the message is simple. Christ died for your sins. To preach the gospel to yourself, Bridges explains, means that you continually face up to your own sinfulness and then flee to Jesus through faith in His shed blood and righteous life. Right? Continually facing up to our own sinfulness and continually fleeing to Christ. C.G. Mahaney continues, It's a matter of sitting yourself down, grabbing your own attention, and saying, Hey, self, listen up. This is what matters most. You're forgiven. You have hope. Your hope is based on the sacrifice of Jesus. So let's not view this day or in any other way. Let this day be governed by the one 
defining truth. Truth of the gospel of Christ, how we stand before Him. You know, as I've thought about this over the past months and over the past few years, what's continued to encourage me is this, is that God hasn't merely ignored my sin. Rather, when I sin, I think to myself now, you know what, God is fully aware of my sin. He's not just putting it under the carpet. He's not pretending it didn't exist. But you know what? He dealt with it. He dealt with the very sin that I committed today. Dealt with the very sin that I committed against my wife in the car this morning on the way to church. Dealt with at the cross of Christ. And with that, you can live in a joyful way. And I found that my own self, I need to say, you know, my sin is dealt with at the cross. And I say, I have as much need today to believe that as I did the very first day I believed. And you have a need to believe that as much as you do did the very first day you believed. And I, and I find that when I do that, I find an overwhelming sense of thanksgiving arise in my heart when I think again that I can stand before God with no condemnation, completely free, completely forgiven, standing pure and blameless and holy in His sight. It causes great joy and it causes great thanksgiving to God, which is my last point this morning. Walk with thanksgiving. Walk with thanksgiving. And that's where Paul ends here, verse 7. Overflowing with gratitude. It's almost like this is the, the culmination of, of saving events. It's just a, a heart that overflows with gratitude. That's how Paul ended things in chapter 1, verse 12. He's praying that they would then give thanks to the Father who's qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He goes on to explain about just the redemption of God and how we ought to be thankful for that. Or in chapter 3, verse 15, he just kind of hangs it on to the end. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let's just overflow. Let's think here about this phrase, overflowing with gratitude. The picture here is of a, of a fountain of water bubbling over. This past week, Yvonne and I were taken out to dinner by some precious friends here in the church who wanted to encourage us. We took them to Lino's. How many of you have been to Lino's? You remember, as you walk in there, Lino's, what do you see? See this fountain, right? And it's just bubbling over in this water, you know, creates this nice aroma, and then the water comes down, and then it filters up again and again and again and again and again. Overflowing with gratitude. That ought to be how you are. Just gratitude, gratitude, thanks, 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 thanks. That's what you are. It's what you ought to be. Out of our mouths ought to spew forth constant expresses, expressions of thanksgiving. Think about this fountain. What happened, kids? What, what would happen if I would like put my hand on the, the fountain? You know, it's bubbling up. What if I put my hand right there? What would happen? It starts spraying all out and get everybody wet. You know, all around. Everyone's sitting there waiting for the dinner. They're all getting wet. <clears throat> you realize what? The water would still come out. And so also with our expressions of thanksgiving, if we are overflowing with gratitude, nothing's going to stop our giving of thanks. 
Something comes into our lives, seeks to suppress that thankfulness. It's going to happen. The inner pressure within us ought to well up and cause our thanksgiving to so flow out that everybody gets wet with thanksgiving. That's what it ought to be. All it should be about. So what should I be thankful for? The text would call us to focus upon everything we've received in our salvation. We've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in that. Be firm and established and always just overflowing in thanks. And I think the direct context is overflowing in thanks of what God has done for our souls. What He has given to us, what it is that we have received. God took us from being dead in our sins and He made us alive in Jesus Christ. He qualified us to share in the inheritance of His saints in light in 13 and 14. Of chapter 1, it talks about how He rescued us from danger and darkness and He transferred us to the kingdom of His Son. He redeemed us and He forgave us. And can you give thanks for that? I hope you can. We have a hope which we can live for. We know that we're no longer under the condemnation of God. We have blessings of the church. Even simple things you can give thanks for. You know, recently we had a friend of ours over from for dinner and... Um, this man had been saved from drugs. And um, he was just talking about his home and how his home was, um, was when he grew up. And his parents were kind of workaholics and just off working, didn't care a lick for him. And he just talked about the simple blessings of giving thanks to God before we eat a meal. And he was so thankful. His, his eyes were welling up with tears as he just thought about the blessings of his family now that he's a believer in Christ, that when he gathers a family, we can just pray to God and, and, and take of this food thankfully. And that we had just done that as well with our family, with his family. And he's just thankful for that. You, you can find even little things to give thanks for. And if you reach a point where you say, you know what, I, I don't even know of anything else to be thankful for. Again, think of that fountain. And think about bubbling up again and just bringing the same water out, the same things you were thankful for. Right? Just go through this list of uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. He's, he's qualified me to share the inheritance. Thank you, Lord. You've transferred me. You've redeemed me. You've forgiven me. And just let that again and again and again and again and again and again flow out of the fountain if you don't know what to give thanks to the Lord for. That's the way that you can be overflowing with gratitude. You know what I think one of the keys to be overflowing with gratitude is? I think it comes in our hymnal. In hymn number 319, which we're going to sing here in a little bit, but just look at it here. This is the key to the text. This is the key to our thanksgiving. This is what the Lord's Supper is all about. I said we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper here pretty soon. It's, it's all about this. Coming back, coming near to the cross. Hymn number 319. Jesus, keep me near the cross. There a precious fountain. Free to all a healing stream. <clears throat> flows from Calvary's mountain. In the cross, in the cross, be my glory ever. Till my raptured soul shall find rest beyond the river. Near the cross, O trembling soul, love and mercy found me. There the bright and morning star sheds its beams around me. 
just thinking again of the cross, thinking about a trembling soul. God came to save and deliver that. And it's just an expression about God keep me near the cross. It is an expression of thanksgiving for all that was done for this soul, for Fanny Crosby and the cross of Christ. And so I simply ask you this morning, church family, are you going to walk in Him? Are you going to walk in Christ? Are we as a church going to always stand firm and walk where we began? Are we going to walk like trees and walk like houses and walk like rocks and overflow with gratitude? That is the Christian life. And if we get that right, we get everything right. And that's my prayer that that would be our case. So let's just, let's just bow our heads for a moment of, of prayer, reflection upon the cross, upon our salvation, as we even think about celebrating the, the Lord's Supper. You know, in celebrating the Lord's Supper, God tells us that we ought not to celebrate it in an unworthy manner. It means that we ought not to celebrate it in an unbelieving, unloving way. I would even have you now just examine your hearts. Say, have I been like the church at Ephesus? Have I left my first love? Well, then come back. There was hope for Ephesus to repent, do the deeds they did at first, have the love that they had at first. There's hope for them. There's hope for you. And I pray that today, just your your whole perspective might again be renewed to think about the cross of Christ and just how we need to stand there firm in the cross. So, Lord Jesus, I pray this morning, God, that You would keep us near the cross. That in all ways, God, that we would be those to, to, to live our lives as we began. Live our lives trusting in Jesus, continually reminding ourselves when we sin not to condemn ourselves. God, but to realize that we're forgiven. Not to try to do everything to please Your favor. God, to, to earn favor before You, to merit something before You, but to realize that, no, You earned it all. And that any obedience that we do is merely because we're just servants who are supposed to act that way. So Lord, I pray, even as we sing, may this be a prayer near the cross. So let's sing together. Jesus, keep me near the cross. There's a precious fountain.